Now, last Sunday, we uh, left Moses barefoot by a burning bush. And while he was grazing his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness, God had revealed himself to this man in the most unusual way. And there stood Moses there in the desert on holy ground in the presence of God. Can you imagine? Can, can you put yourself there in a situation like that with what he was enjoying? Even more amazing were the words that God uh, spoke to this man who, at 80 years of age, had resigned himself to live out his life in peace and quiet and obscurity. For him, I'm, I'm going to be a shepherd the rest of my life. Well, here's what we read here. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction. By the way, as we're reading through this, take special note of because the way I had to do this today, I couldn't emphasize a lot of things on here. But take note of the personal pronouns as God speaks. Take note of the, the terms for suffering. You'll see the word suffering, but take note of all the terms. What God had noticed, what God knew. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And you may want to have your text open today, your Bibles open, as we're going through some of this. But, but what I wonder is, as, as Moses is there on that holy ground and God says those words, did Moses wonder, why is God telling me this? After all, I have been there and failed at that. I let God down and I let God's people down. So, you know, why should God be telling me this? But I, I think there has to be also a sense of initial relief that God is now going to finish the job that he started and couldn't complete. But God is now going to do this and bring about the deliverance for those who had suffered so long with his people, who had endured such great pain and had little or no hope for so long. Well, even Moses may have rapidly processed something like this. But uh, and then the very next statement is where Moses is shaken to the core of his being, startled by God when God says, note the second bullet, God said, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, come. And I will send you hmm, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What is my 80 year old ears failing me? Did God just say what I think he said to me? Oh, the message was unmistakable. God has come down, but Moses would be the one whom God would send to bring the people out. But from what follows in chapters 3 and 4, it's very evident that Moses became very uncomfortable with what God was calling him to do. And make no mistake, even though the name of God, and we're going to talk about this a little later, appears so many times in Exodus, 
Moses' name as the deliverer was found 291 times in this book. And his assistant, Aaron, also looked at as a a co-redeemer, so to speak, and deliverer, appears 116 times. So this, this is a very significant moment. Now, Moses is so concerned that it raises a series of questions and concerns in his mind, really nothing less than arguing with God, and I'm sure you've You've never done that. I mean, I was a pastor for over 40 years, and I I don't think I ever had, well, maybe. But, you know, there are those times in which we are, God can't do that. Don't want to do that. But here, Moses is going to try to sidestep God's plans, and he has five concerns or questions in his mind. So let's see. Here's a, here's a quick overview of where we're headed today and next Sunday. First, he asked the question, oh, God, who am I? I'm not qualified. You've chosen the wrong man. Then chapter 3, verse 13, he will ask, what shall I tell them? That is, his people. What will I tell your people when I go back there? They'll want to know by what authority I am sent to them. A third question that will come up, chapter 4, verse 1. Well, well, God, what if they don't believe me? I mean, they, they didn't believe me before. They rejected me, and that's why I'm out here in the desert. If I go back, what's changed? Anything? Fourth, chapter 4, verse 10. Well, well God, I, um, I really have never been eloquent. I, I I have a hard time putting words together, and uh, so mm. number five, Lord, please send someone else. You got the wrong man here. I'm sure there's someone who could do a better job. So why don't you look for somebody else? And and I wonder, from my human standpoint, why would Or should God want to choose a man who had failed so miserably before, a man whose resume included murder, as well as running from the scene of the crime and running from God, and a man who's now beyond his most productive years? What are you going to accomplish at 80 years old, leading a million people out of bondage? How can he do that? Well, let's do a quick review catch up some things for last week just to be sure we are all on the same page how many were here last week or not not here last week okay there's there's a number of you so let's let's pick up a few things point one here chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 moses first objection who am i and then god's response basically is founded on the promise of god And God's reminder to him that his presence is all that I need, all that you need. So God is pleased to call what we see here when God calls Moses, what we call an average ordinary person, just like me, just like any of you who are sitting here today. He didn't, the world, the world looks for people who are gifted, talented, have charisma, But we already have seen in the book of Exodus a beautiful thing, and that is God uses the ordinary people. Think back 
to what we have seen here, and I've got a list for you up on the board, the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, just ordinary people going about their medical work of obstetrics, you know, and so they're, they're taking care of all that, but God used them. A fearless mom who isn't even named in that first chapter or second chapter, but we learn later on in chapter 6, I believe it is, her name is Jochebed. And then uh, a casual stroll by Pharaoh's daughter and all of her attendants. So here they come. And then there's that little girl, Moses' sister, Miriam, who comes to the aid. By the way, what's the common denominator in all those besides being just ordinary people? Except for the princess, of course, but her entourage with her, ordinary people. What's the common factor? Excuse me? They're all women. Here's, here's one of the oddities of this all. In chapter 1, what did Pharaoh say over and over? Kill the boys. Get rid of the boys. Don't worry about the girls. The girls won't cause any problem. Exhibit A. There was where his problem was. Never underestimate the power of a woman. So, anyway, that's enough of that social. Um, Moving on here. As Moses stands barefoot there at the burning bush, and aren't we all that way? We all should be barefoot at the presence of a holy God. And here he is. God takes him by surprise and says, So I have seen, verses 7 and 8, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry and their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them. So God calls Moses to be his instrument, his messenger, his deliverer, to bring out the redemption of his people. Come, I will send you. But Moses there is very reticent, as we've already mentioned. Who am I? Verse 11 now. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God, you picked the wrong person. I don't have what it takes to deliver them. From a human, purely pure human standpoint, uh, I think we could agree that Moses is qualified, though. Last time... I mentioned that if you were to check out a resume, there's not a written resume, but if we pick out scriptures and find out things about Moses, what do we learn about him? Do any of you remember why Moses would be a logical choice to go back and to speak to Pharaoh? He was raised in Pharaoh's house, okay? What else? Okay, what about, what about, this gives him connections. What about the matter of leading people out into the wilderness? Does he have any experience there? Forty years of experience of do, leading dumb sheep out in the wilderness. So, he had training, experience, connections. Sounds like a great match to me, but not to Moses. God's come back is quick and very simple and powerful. I will be with you. You're not going alone. I'm not asking you to do something by yourself on your own abilities. I will be with you. And notice the quote. I gave this last week, but I think it's an important one, so I've repeated it from Phil Riken. If God had shown Moses that he was fully qualified for his calling, that would have led Moses to trust in his own gifts rather than in his God. 
The real question was not who Moses was, but who God was. For God said, I will be with you. The Exodus does not, did not depend on the competence of Moses, but on the presence of God. Can I encourage you to remember that? Whatever God calls you to do. If it's a serve in teaching Sunday school class, teaching children, uh, speaking to a group, leading a Bible study, anything, in fact, that God calls you to do, even in your calling in this world, God will never take you where he will not be with you and enable you. So what truly qualifies Moses for the job is twofold. God's calling he sensed that calling. He hears it clearly. But also, God's promise, I will be with you. What did Jesus say himself in John chapter 15? Without me, you can do nothing. Some people, I, I, I'm threatened to buy me one of these shirts. I can do all things from a verse taken out of context. You know, I can do all things. But... But this is a true promise of God. I will be with you. And without God in it, it will not be blessed. So, last week we were reminded that the Apostle Paul's own struggle with his own qualifications. But by God's grace, he was able to say that not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. I, I couldn't have done this. And he was a, a gifted rabbi before his conversion. But, he says, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. God is the one who makes us competent because of his calling to us. So, if God has called you, he will enable you to any task. If God calls you, even in your 80th year, to go to the mission field, God will enable you. Maybe there's some here, you have gifts in certain areas that could be used on a mission field. What a wonderful thing for you to do that. We saw, when we were over at another church, we saw God do that many, many times and we're so thankful for it. Well, the key to spiritual service is not what we bring to the table. All right, what are you going to bring to the table here? No, it's who we bring to the task. And here God is being brought to the task. So what Moses should have thought was, I can't, but he can. So I will trust my God. So essentially, when he said, I will be with you, this was a call to faith, to trust God to work through and in a, a shattered, weak vessel. Do you remember when we were studying 1 Corinthians? Do you remember these words there? But God chose what is foolish. Well, why would he choose that? To shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, here's the reason, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, 
wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Everything we need comes from God through Christ, who is to us everything that we need for anything that we face in life. So, there's some other verses there, but I think I'll, I'll move on. Uh, you might want to draw, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 7, and 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 7. The reminder is, we walk by faith, not by sight, which will come up again here in a moment. So, in, in this case, God said he would lead his people back to the very spot when you come to the point of what's the sign. God gave a sign. Oh, Lord, thank you for a sign. I need a sign. Give me a sign. Okay, I've got a sign for you. I, you know, behold, uh, this shall be a sign. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And this shall be a sign. A virgin shall conceive, bear a son. The, the signs of God, you know, Gideon throwing out the fleece and everything else. All right. So here, here he is. He's going to look for a sign in verse 12. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And what's wrong from a human standpoint with a sign? That sign. What's wrong with it from a human standpoint? I don't see it until after it's done. I've got to do this all by what? Faith. Trust. Believing God. God told me to do this. I'm going to do this and believe. And he says, then you will come back to this very spot because you're walking by faith, not by sight. And so God answers the first objection with this simple fact. His presence is all that Moses needs. That's all that you need in life. Do we have God's presence with us today? We'll come to that in a few minutes. All right, let's look at second thing. Moses' second objection. Well, what will I say when I go back there? Verses 3 through 15. And it's, this is going to center on the name of God. The first was on the promise of God. Now he's going to center on the name of God, who God is, where he will find out that God's sufficiency is more than enough. So Moses continues to feel pressure for his own, from his own failures, his own inadequacy, um, the huge task that God's calling him to do to lead these people out. So he continues, Moses continues to look for a way out, to look for an exit, to look for an exodus of his own. I'd, I'd like to back out of this. I, the exodus I want is out. Of this, this particular tight spot. And he imagines in his mind, as all of us would, all right, what's this going to be like? I remember that when we moved here to Richmond from Denver, Colorado, having served out there for 13 years, and we were moving out here, and we looked at the situation, and uh, we passed the, the, and the churches, Baptist churches handle things differently, okay? So the calling to us was, first of all, the pulpit committee recommended us by and approved by a single vote. Okay? So then it went to the elders of the church. And that was approved by a single vote. And then they took it to the church. And it got the minimal 
amount of votes that you could get and still get a call. What would you have done? I'd have done a lot of talking with God, and I did. I also called a lot of people to get their advice. What do I do about this? In fact, a former pastor, I called a former pastor of the church, and I said, what do you think? He said, man, it's a divided church. I don't, I don't know that you can go. And they, they were divided on the fact that, number one, I, I'll share this publicly now. Number one, they were divided because of my name, Sparky. They could not imagine having a pastor with a name like Sparky. I mean, can we, can we put your name on things as your, your real name? And I'm not even going to tell you what my real name is. <laughs> Turner, you be quiet. Okay, so I said, I don't know if this is the will of God, but if this is the will of God, you want to miss the will of God because you don't like Sparky? And they knew the story. I told them the story of how I got the name Sparky from birth. Miraculous type thing uh, that happened. But that was a problem. It was a problem because I came from a very conservative school. And I graduated and got my master's degree, did Ph.D. work, and taught on the faculty at Bob Jones University. Bob Jones. That school. And then, and then there was something else, too. I, there were three things, and I, I don't even remember the third. But I can remember that uh, I'm thinking, man, do I accept this? Is there any possibility I should be doing this? And, and as I talked to the man who was, by the way, in a leading seminary, a leading a graduate school, uh, who was teaching um, exposition, uh, he was outstanding teacher. He said, maybe, maybe you're the guy to bring it together. Maybe God wants to use you. We talked and talked and prayed. And I said, all right, if I take it, you're a former pastor. You come in and do the installation service. He said, okay. Now, here, oh, here's the other reason. Because the pastor before had been there for 14 years. And there was a pattern in the church. A pastor would come and stay for 14 years. It, it, this is the honest pattern, 14 years. Next one would come in, and, and he would last three years. Then the next one came in, 14 years, three years. The next one came, 14 years, and three years. And the one before me was 14 years. It's a sign from God, okay? If you're looking for signs, there it is. But I thought, well, let's see. I can remember I was getting very nervous in the third year there. But God did, but God did some wonderful things. I was there for 24 years. I blew the whole sign thing out. No, God did. Because the advice of this man was simply this. You go in there love the people, and preach the word faithfully. Just do those two things. And God was faithful to keep his promises. 
So that, w- that was a tough situation for us going in because we had a young family and, you know, we were going to stay long. But anyway, God, God was faithful. So he, I imagined what it would be like coming there and what, what would happen. Moses is kind of doing the same thing. He's thinking back. Now, now Lord, what's going to happen when I get back there and, and the people come and I say, I've come here to deliver you? He's got some serious questions. If you look at verse 13, he said, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You know, if, if he had told his story of, Well, I was out in the desert with a bunch of sheep one day when the sun was high, and there was a there was a bush there that was on fire, but it really wasn't on fire because it was never consumed. But it really was a real fire, and 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 the voice started the 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 bush started talking to me. And you would you have if I were come in here this morning and, and say, you know, this week I had a vision. I think we all all ought to move down to Texas or Iowa or wherever. All right, so let's, let's pack up and go. You ready to go? I mean, how many of you would be foolish enough to follow me? I think he's got a legit, from a human standpoint, he's got a legitimate question here. What, what am I going to say to these people? Would you have believed old man Moses? Would you have followed him on some kind of crazy thing into the desert? We're going to die out there. Well, Moses is asking God for something that people will believe. He needs some answers to tough questions. So, who is this God whom you say has sent you? Tell us his name and which describes him best and tells us something about the character of this God. By the way, there's an interesting uh, uh, little section in Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. Let me read to you. It's about Treebeard, and it's about names. Treebeard is an interesting name in itself, isn't it? He says, My name is growing all the time, and I've lived for a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of things they belong to. God's name here is going to be revealed in a unique way. And this is where I wanted to just take some time here because I didn't deal with this a lot last week. Now, the key question, if you look down with me to verse 13, and it's on here in the third, second bullet, the key question is in chapter 3, verse 13, what is your name? Now, in chapter 5, verse 2, you see right below that, Pharaoh would ask, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? So we see there's questions being asked here. Who? What? But the Hebrew scholars remind us that there's a subtle and substantive difference between who and what in the Hebrew text here. The word who is concerned with identity. How you identify someone. For instance, my name is Sparky. All right, that's my name. Now, someone might ask, well, what does that mean? Where did you get that? I get it all the time. Were you an electrician? Were you a radio operator in in military? Were you struck by lightning? I've had that. 
So they want to know what's behind the name. And that's where the what comes in. That here, this is what Moses is actually asking. Tell me something that will make a difference here with these people. In other words, what is the nature of God himself? This God whom you say will come to deliver us. He is Yahweh. That's our pronunciation. In uh, written out, it's Y W H W, or Y W W. Let me get that right. Y H W H. That's right. I got it right. Yahweh, because I don't think in those terms. It's called the Tetragrammaton. That means four letters. The Hebrews did not pronounce the name. They thought it was too sacred. And so they supplied vowel pointings to make it say something else. They took it from Adonai, the word for Lord in in Hebrew, and they put in the vowels so it became Yahweh, that we pronounce it that way today. But we don't know exactly how this was going to be pronounced. Now, the interesting thing is, and I've stuck something up here on this. uh, Let's see if it's the next slide. Yeah, right there. Look at the second bullet. We need to spend some time here because Yahweh, this word will appear 306, 398 times. In the book of Genesis, it does appear. Okay? This is not the first time they've heard this name. But they haven't understood the significance of the name. What's the real substance behind all of this? So, um, by the way, you, one little notation. C-O-T. Old Testament, Yahweh is used 6,070 times. You will see it in your ESV or King James Version with all capital letters. That's how you know the difference between Adonai or Yahweh. Yahweh is always capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, whereas the other is capital L and lowercase letters. Okay, So that's the way you tell the difference in all of this. So if we look at verses 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He uses a, a, uh, the intransitive verb uh, to be, and then it's then made into a, uh, and I forget the, the term we would probably use, it's made into a substantive. The verb form is changed into a name itself. So it's repetitive. I am I am. Uh, the, the who or what there in the, in the Hebrew is merely a, a placeholder. Doesn't even need to be translated. I am, I am. It sounds a little gibberish maybe to us. But he says, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. So I am is the name. God also said to Moses, say to this people, the Lord, there's Yahweh, notice all capitals, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is how God was to be identified. But what does that name mean? What is to be known about this one who is the I am, Yahweh? Well, as the I am, 
or he is. We could put it that way. He is the self-existent, self-sufficient, absolute sovereign in all and over all. Joel Beakey agrees with Kelly Douglas, who writes this in his Systematic Theology. I am that I am means that God depends on nothing while everything else depends on him. He depends upon nothing. He's all-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. This is the defining moment in Israel's history here as this is coming together. The longer explanation of that name is given over in another section, chapter 6, verse 6. So if you've got your Bible, mark this. I told you at the beginning of this series that Exodus 6, 6 and 7 is uh, the key verses for this whole first section and, in fact, for all of the book of Exodus. But here is what we read in Exodus 6, 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Now, let's define that, who I am. And I will bring you out under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Okay, so this not only defines God, it defines their history in this moment of the revelation of God and who he is. And three defining statements here is what he is and what he does. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. But there's more to consider. Isaiah said this, 42.8. I, actually God said it in Isaiah. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. So, let's look at a couple of things with this. This name, Yahweh, is God's covenant name because here God had made a covenant with Abraham, but here he's going to make a covenant with all his people. We'll see that later on in in Exodus. It's his covenant name that they would come to know to experience God as the one who delivers, the one who redeems, the one who is our salvation, for he is Yahweh who is and who redeems his people. For instance, in Jonah, the prophet captured it in a statement from his own experience, and his own experience came as he was inside the belly of a fish, and God delivered him. And he makes this statement, which is the theme of the book of Jonah, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah, if you know this, Jonah has left Israel, God's people, to go and preach to another nation and preach to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. He preaches the truth because salvation is from Yahweh. If he wants to take the gospel there and redeem people there, he will. Because he is the God of the covenant who brings people into his covenant. Isaiah 43, 11. I, even I, am Yahweh, and apart from me, there is no one who is saving. Only way I'm going to be saved. Jesus, who is Lord, by the way, the Septuagint, the Greek Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
uh, done two centuries before the time of Christ and was used and quoted by Christ, by Paul. The Septuagint translated Yahweh with the word kurios. Kurios is the word that you see in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a title to that equality with God, the very essence of God. So Jesus, who is Lord, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Of course, the, the name Yahweh is used long before this moment in history. It, you could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, and you hear the name Yahweh on the people of God. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, or Yahweh. And it was the Lord Yahweh who cut a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 20, 12 to 20. So uh, here, this name of his, uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, comes from a Hebrew word which simply means to be. There is a slight alteration in Hebrew. For anybody who might know that, there's one letter in the middle. It's changed from a verb to make it into the, the name here. But it's translated, I am, since it's from the verb to be. And we find this woven uh, in the text repeatedly. Uh, we might put it that God is, that God is revealing himself and who he is. I, I've included a quote here that I think is really good that I hope will encourage you. This comes from Joel Beakey's Systematic Theology. And by the way, I checked a number of theologies, everybody from Bavink uh, to Calvin to um, who were some of the others I read, uh, Lethem, Robert Lethem, and others, Hodge, Charles Hodge. But here was just a great quote I thought would be encouraging. There is much meaning in God's name, but there is also mystery. The sentences, I am that I am, and I am hath sent me, are intentionally strange to our ears. They imply that there is much more about this God who simply is that we cannot understand. However, God has not revealed his name for our speculation, but for our faith, encouragement, comfort, and hope. I like that. And by the way, in that sense then, of Yahweh, the I am, we share something with Moses. We too know the one who is the great I am. We know him by another name, the name that is above every name, the name Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh. John eight twenty four, <clears throat> I told you that you would die in your sins, <clears throat> for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John eight twenty eight. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. These are, these are not accidental statements. They appear throughout the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jewish people did not miss out on what He just said. Because what did they want to do when they heard him say that? They wanted to kill him right there for blasphemy. You're calling yourself Yahweh. The I am. 
As Phil Riken says, a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the great I am. Do you believe in the great I am, Jesus Christ? He brings us out. He delivers us. He redeems us. So we share that with Moses. We worship the great I am, Yahweh. All right, so. But there's a portion of Exodus 3.13, if you've got that open in front of you, that has not been answered. Moses needed to know what he should say. What shall I say to them? Uh, We've talked about the name. Who sent me? Who will I say sent me? Now, what, what shall I say to them when they ask me some of these questions? What would convince them? Um, there, I, I heard that there was a teacher here recently in this class that talked about movies, you know, and, and making movies and the handsome one, and, you know, and, so, and, and he happens to be in the room right now, so he knows who he's talking about. He's shaking his head, yes, he agrees totally with me. Okay, but... In a movie, if you're going to make a movie, this has always been fascinating to me to go behind the scenes and what happens. The first thing that happens is somebody has to sit down and think about, what is this story? Where is it going? And you know what they do? They create a storyboard. That is, they have artists draw up scenes that will happen throughout the movie, and they have this all over the walls of the room. And so he'll bring the team in and say, all right, let me show you the story that we're telling. So we'll get... Get this told in the right way, and we'll, our finished product will look right. And so they take them through the storyboard. What you've got in verses 16 to 22, if I could say this reverently, is a storyboard of God's plan. He said, okay, Moses, you, wa- you want to know what the plan is? Let me share with you the plan. And here it comes. So look with me in verse 14. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Go and gather the elders together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. I left a few things out there, but just to give you the essential thought of that. So let's unpack those two verses. Let's look at the storyboard. They have a lot to say about who God is and what he is going to do through Moses and for his people. Here's basically four things. First of all, this God is Lord, Yahweh, the God who is, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who is self-existent, self-sufficient, the one who loves and cares for his people. Secondly, he is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, who called Abraham to follow, was faithful to Isaac and to Jacob, who had promised to visit them and deliver them. Now, here's where I want you to notice. the It's not bold up here, but notice this statement. There's going to be a theme. He is the God of their past. God had promised something centuries before. God had been faithful to their patriarchal ancestors. All right, He's the God of their past. Number three, He is the God who has observed you, you Jews here in Egypt, and what has been done to you in Egypt. He knows of their troubles and 
Now he responds to their need because he is the God of their present. So I, I wasn't only back there initiating something. I'm here with you right now. I know what's going on. Then, number four, he is the God who promises to bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. He's going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey because he is the God of their future. All right. So, let me be preachy here for a minute. This, this is where we see that the God of Israel who redeemed his people is also our God, Yahweh, the I Am Here is the God who came to dwell with us. He is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. You go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us, tinted among us. You know, the cool thing about that is? It's the same word used for the tabernacle in Exodus. Connections going on there. All right, then... He is also the one who came to redeem us, who established his covenant through his blood. Today you will hear the pastor say, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. Drink you all of it. Because he is the God of our past. He died in the past to forgive us of our sins. Number three, he is the God who sees and knows our situation, your situation who is with us in every affliction, understands every need, because he is the God of your present, watching over you, forgiving your sins, watching over you. And he is the God who promises to bring us out of this present evil age and to bring us into our eternal inheritance because he is the God of our future, giving us hope. As Paul writes in Galatians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. That's the God of our past. And to deliver us from this present evil age, there's the God of our future. And he is with us now. So this is beautiful to see how this is picturing also our redemption. The Lord said to Moses, Moses, tell this to the people. I'm the God who has been with them in the past, who is with them now, who will be and who will deliver them. You tell them this. They need to know this. They need to believe this. They need to rejoice in this. And they need to live by this. So also, this was their God. This is our God. This is how we are to live as God people, right? All right. So. But. You know, Moses is given something else to say. There's another mission. Let's go to the next room and look at the next storyboard. Here's part two of this whole situation here. I, I would think, you know, if I were giving titles to this, the first part we just saw, we might could call A New Hope. And this next part is kind of like the Egyptian Empire Strikes Back, something like that. I but, but here, let's look at verse 18. <clears throat> you, <laughs> Lord, why do you keep using my name? I haven't agreed to this yet. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, Yahweh, 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So, having met with God's people, when he comes back, that was the previous verses here, 16 and 17, you would go meet with the people, then you're going to go see Pharaoh. Moses is to initiate this confrontation with a very clear purpose in mind to reveal whether or not Pharaoh is allowed or is willing to allow God's people to worship their God freely. So this is the test. But this will become the tension point between Moses and Pharaoh. Who gets the glory? Who is worthy of worship? It will be thus says the Lord which we are going to hear a lot in the next few chapters, or will be, thus says Pharaoh, which we will also hear a lot. And you see it on Pharaoh's stellas, his stones where he kept a record of his history. All right, so who? Pharaoh is going to refuse this request. Verse 19, there, if you look at that, Pharaoh is going to refuse to let him go, exposing his hostility toward God, toward God's people. He's even... the Uh, not even willing to let them sacrifice to their God. Because culture can always take us from being marginalized to be intolerable. I don't want to become a prophet, but I'm really wondering where we're headed. Christianity has been marginalized in America. When I was growing up in the 1950s, everybody knew the name of God. Everybody respected God. Today, I will talk to people, and they've never even heard the name of Jesus. They've never talked about God in their homes. There's a definite shift. What's going to happen? Only God knows, but God is with us, right? So, Pharaoh's refusal will compel God to respond with a mighty hand. Verse 19, there in your text, exposing his hostility toward God, toward the people here. Uh, he will, uh, God will respond with a mighty hand. Interesting phrase, mighty hand. The reason is that's the very phrase that is used uh, in many of Pharaoh's conquests and inscriptions that were left behind. Pharaoh's mighty hand. But here's the point. <clears throat> Those who think they have the upper hand, when they meet the mighty hand of God, They will discover he is nothing to trifle with. So, God says, and this is verse 20, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now, again, this is a storyboard. This is all simple. We're just getting the basic, big picture of what's going to happen. It's going to be a lot more dramatic when it plays out on the screen here of Exodus. So, not only would Pharaoh send them out, he also reveals here in verse 20 and following that God's people would leave with their hands full. They have worked hard and long as slaves. God's God's going to see that they're paid back. God's going to give them something. 
God will give them an overabundance of Egyptian treasures. Verse 22, But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. In an unjust world like they lived in, in an unjust world like we live in, God will bring justice in his time, repaying his people for all their servitude over those years. God is a God of justice. He will have Moses later write this in the law. I don't have this on the screen, but listen carefully. This is from Deuteronomy 15. Let me tell you how God's people are to live. They're not to live like Egyptians. He said, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press, As the Lord, your God, has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord, your God, redeemed you. Hmm. Interesting words. So, now... What we just heard in verses 16 to 22 foreshadows all that's to come over the next few chapters. And what we'll do here is, let me see, did I have a screen for this? I don't think I did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here is the the next few chapters of what we're going to see happening. Moses will go to Egypt. People will listen and believe. Notice that. He has said, they will listen, they will believe. That's significant for what we'll talk about next week. Pharaoh will be confronted and yet harden his heart. Does Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? Hmm, I've already had questions about that one before the class ever started. We're waiting for that one. I think Rick's got that one in his. (laughs) Pharaoh will refuse to let the people go. That God will do wonders by a mighty hand. Pharaoh will expel the Israelites from the land, and God's people will take away treasures. There's the storyboard. So now we are just about ready to go to it because, after all, Moses, here's the plan. God says, I've got everything under control. Here's how it's going to happen. And so Moses says, yes, let's go. Right? Have you read the story? All right, come back next week. We'll talk more about it. Father, thank you for this time together and pray that you will bless in the next service. Thank you for our pastor. Bless him as he preaches your word, helping to do it faithfully to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.